The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I am your social worker with the microphone. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. It is the Catherine Zox Show, and I have two guests this morning. Uh, my first guest is already here, Barbara Burke. Barbara Burke is the author of The Napkin, The Melon, and The Monkey, a very creative name. Uh, it's, her book is described as a customer service fable. How to be happy and successful at work and in life by simply changing your mind. Sounds like really simple, but the description of Barbara's book is, uh, in this modern day fable, Barbara, my guest, offers keen insight and practical advice for providing excellent customer service with a human touch. I highly recommend this powerful book along with Barbara's training program to those companies who want to distinguish themselves as truly great providers of customer care. And this comes from the vice president of the Walt Disney Company. So, Barbara, welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. Let's start out. Give us a little background in terms of your experience and how you came to writing this book and what makes you the expert on customer service. Sure. Well, you know, I've spent the last 24 years working with uh, those individuals that take your incoming calls in uh, utilities and insurance companies and just about every kind of uh, industry you can imagine. And my role has been working with frontline service reps. And I observed early on that one of the biggest stressors that these um, customer service warriors uh, had was dealing with all the anger that came their way from customers. And certainly this is, um, this is just part of the job, but it really is the worst part of working in customer care. And what would happen but can is I stop you there, Barbara? Isn't that what customer care is all about? Now, I'm talking to you as a consumer. I think this is one of, a huge issue. And I could give you probably ten of my own personal stories, which you don't want to hear. But I always figure I'm calling customer service most of the time because I am angry. I am mad. There is a problem, either with the product or the company or the way I've been served. So I start out angry. It would seem to me that if you're in customer service, isn't that kind of the definition of the people that you are dealing with, that you have to be – I mean, I always feel the customer is always wrong when I speak to – I'm not going to name the companies, but um, so I kind of go into the thing thinking I'm always going to be put on the defensive. Sure, and that's really part, that's really part of uh, the job and certainly comes with the territory, but uh, let's just take it from a customer service representative standpoint – um, they take anywhere from 80 to 100 calls a day. They are uh, monitored closely, so their calls are recorded, and they are scored on their behavior during that, that phone call. And I have clients, actually, that, that rate their service reps based on 28 different behaviors that they need to exhibit within 628 seconds. 
So the work environment is highly structured. There's a lot of pressure. And add on to that uh, a stream of angry customers, customers who are angry about their situation, and um, probably for good reason. And what I think the consumer doesn't understand is that oftentimes these customer service reps are really great, great people, but they have no authority to, to move mountains, which is often what customers really want. Now, truly, there are some burned-out service reps who just kind of take a lot of joy in, <laughs> in making their customers' lives crazy. But what I've found is that um, what happens uh, a lot of the time is that these service reps become they might become jaded because they have to put up a defense, or they might internalize the anger that they're getting from customers. And so the method that I've developed, which uh, is actually a tool that service reps use in order to kind of separate themselves from the anger of the customers and being able to deal with that anger, but then more importantly, being able to be in a state of mind where they're, uh, where they're clear-headed and focused and not getting hooked in emotionally. So what companies, are you working with companies, okay, you're here to help the companies and help their uh, their service reps to do a better job in terms of representing the company and also to help the consumer. You bet. Right? Yeah. All right, so what about, what about the companies? Are you working with big companies, medium-sized companies? Can we name the companies? Probably not. Um, a lot of them are in the, in the utility sector. So um, let's see, what would they be? Uh, people like uh, Austin Energy in Austin, Texas, um, I'm trying to think of them all. Right, well, <laughs> We've only been doing this, this okay, for 24 years. Okay, we can take years, the energy. But, you know, in New York, it's National Grid. I mean, it doesn't yep. really matter what the name of the company is. Absolutely. But people have all kinds of issues usually related to that. So what are some of those issues that the customer service people are faced with? I mean, you have a power outage. You have, uh, you know, your bill screwed up. I mean, you could, you know, there's a whole gamut. Um, how do you deal? And most, so most when you're calling, usually when you're calling the electric company or, or the uh, power company, you are angry. I mean, because you want you you know it's it's usually something important. Um, you know, either you have lost your power or you uh, you know or it has something to do with the the bill or whatever it is. So how do you deal with that? Well, typically when people call you. Uh, it's not because they, they love you and they want to tell you how wonderful your electricity is and how flawless the <laughs> service is. So, so the definition of the situation is somebody, they're calling with a problem. And what we're finding is a lot of the really routine kinds of things, like um, you know, how much do I owe and when is my bill due, those kinds of things, um, those are automated now. So you can just use a, a, a IVR for that, the front end for that. So when customers actually get through to a rep, it's usually because there's more of a complex issue. And the ones, the issues that are of the most, um, of, I guess the most volatile are those having to do with, with uh, arranging uh, credit, um, making sure that uh, someone is actually um, paying their bill, and when they're not paying their bill, you have to have a conversation about that, and you try to do that as nicely as you can. Usually power outages, they've got a, a really uh, great system in place to handle that, and um, that is um, a pretty cut-and-dried process. So usually what a customer wants when they call a utility company, um, when they have an outage, is you know, when's it going to be restored, and do you know that we have a problem? So 
Um, that is that is actually a system that's in place. But you know, the, the day-to-day interactions between a service rep and a customer, um, they might be setting up new a uh, new account. But the most volatile ones are having to do with credit issues, uh, particularly these days, because people are really having um, a struggle just trying to make ends meet. And so your utility bill, um, when it's um, sky high, gets to be a problem, and you have to negotiate those arrangements. So people are just angry. You know, they're angry because, you know, the bill is screwed up or they owe too much money and they can't afford it. Um, there might be other issues having to do with... Um, uh, with the quality of their service, their electricity doesn't work or whatever. But really, you know, unfortunately, the service rep is the one that has to take the hits, and it's not their fault. No, it's not their fault, but, of course, they are the front lines. They are the yep. soldiers in the front line, so to speak, so they yep. are going to take the hit. I mean, it seems to me they have to understand that they are going to take the hit, and then what, how are they going to diffuse the anger, which is what your book is about. So Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So, yep. So just to, just to kind of give you an, an idea about this uh, about this process, and certainly it is useful for anybody, and that's one of the reasons I think that the book has resonated with people you know outside of customer service is because it's just so useful. And really, the four-step process goes like this. Let's just say that you have a customer who's angry and spewing expletives at you. You know, your primal reaction is to is fight or flight. Uh, because you're feeling that you're being attacked. And obviously in customer service, you can't be yelling back at customers. But in the book, actually, the main character starts doing that, and that's when she starts getting into trouble. She loses emotional control. So to stop, observe the situation for what it is, thereby kind of creating some emotional space between you and the customer. And if you're able to just stop for that millisecond, to observe the situation for what it is, you realize that, you know what, that guy is really angry, and you know what, I think, I think I'd probably be as angry as he is as well. So you're able to step back, observe the situation for what it is, and then begin thinking about the right solution. The trick is not to get emotionally hooked in to the situation. In other words, don't take it personally. I mean, that is is maybe that simplifying it too much. No, that's exactly it. Yeah. Okay. So you just don't take. This is business, and this is how Mm -hmm. I'm going to handle and and business and emotionally separate yourself. I guess create emotional boundaries around you and around the customer. Yeah. That's that's exactly right. That's exact. You put it perfectly. That's it. So when you're able to do that, you're able to sort of you know what we call kind of being in the moment, being present not spinning out of control, thinking they don't pay me enough to, for this job to, to take all of this abuse, you know, that sort of self-talk, just much more rational. And really what that is, Catherine, is, is being mindful, is being, uh, it is a form of mindfulness. You are in the moment being mindful of the situation and then being able to handle it much more skillfully. And when I introduced this four-step process, because clearly it's, it's been an issue since, um, since I started working with customer service people 24 years ago, is I'd introduce this idea, and they'd go, oh, okay, okay, yep. And it was as if a big, a big weight had lifted from them, where they realized that they don't have to be at the mercy of all of these emotions, but they're able to, what I call, uh, 
control that inner game. You know, you have an outer game and you have an inner game. And if they can control that and manage their emotions, they get much better outcomes and a lot lower stress. You know, Barbara, it's very similar, although it's done in a much shorter period of time in a different kind of relationship, but the relationship that a therapist has with a client or with a patient because they, too, will rant and rave and get angry at you and blame you, you know, as a therapist, as a social worker, for their problems, whatever happens to be going on in their life. But there has to be some kind of a separation. So it's a similar kind of model, although different in lots of ways, which we're going to talk about when we come back, and, and talk specifically about what you call the SODA method, S-O-D-A, SODA, which is the method that we're talking about in your book, The Napkin, the Melon, and the Monkey, Barbara Burke, uh, this is a customer service stable. That's how the book is described. And we're talking about how to be happy and successful at work and in life by simply changing your mind. Barbara Burke and Catherine Zox on The Catherine Zox Show, Voice America, Variety.com. Uh, the Catherine Zox Show, don't go away. We'll be back in a minute. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Emotional intelligence has been documented to be the most important skill for a leader to move up in an organization. Leaders Playbook will unpack what emotional intelligence is, why it is important, and how you can raise your emotional intelligence for yourself, your direct reports, and your team. Join Dr. Relly Nadler every Monday morning at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern, to the Leaders Playbook on the Voice America Business Channel. Your success, your success could depend on it. There's nothing like getting involved in a great book. A lot of different genres have come to the forefront as some of the most discussed subjects of today. Whether it's sci-fi, fantasy, the vampire realm, or romance, join some of today's top authors on The Author Hour, your guide to fantastic fiction, hosted by Matthew Peterson. Get ready to explore the works with the authors themselves. Find out the how and the why and what inspired these geniuses of literary art. Tune in to The Author Hour, Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time, on The Voice of America Variety Channel. Radio by George is a lifestyle program dedicated to improving the lives of listeners by focusing on the holistic growth of their mind, body, and spirit. Host Eddie George shares his life experiences as well as the experiences of his guest commentators and experts with the listening audience to focus them toward reaching their personal and professional goals. Tune in every Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. PST for 
p.m. EST to Radio by George on the Voice America channel and learn more from the life experiences of a man who went from being a somewhat unruly kid in the streets of Philadelphia to a retired professional athlete who has become a role model for not only young people, but for businessmen and women globally. Plan to spend your Monday afternoons with Eddie George and his empowering talk radio show, Radio by George. That's every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. listening to the Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox, and you're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. I'm your social worker with the microphone. Good morning again. Thanks for joining us. I'm talking this morning to Barbara Burke. Barbara is, uh, she re- he's written a book which has been described as a customer service fable, The Napkin, the Melon, and the Monkey, How to Be Happy and Successful at Work and in Life by Simply Changing Your Mind. Well, Barbara, we were talking about the book and we were talking about the process of, you know, customer service representatives and, and how to m- make the most of that job and, and serve your, your customers and your clients well. Um, Barbara's book has been described. It's a business book. It's a self-help book. Uh, you can go to her website, barbaraburke.com, barbaraburke.com, and that's B-U-R-K-E.com for more information about what we're talking about. So, Barbara, we, um, we're talking, well, we, first we're kind of getting into the method that you use or help, that helps customer service people to deal with their customers, their clients. Um, and uh, so we want to just finish that, the SODA method, S-O-D-A, uh, yeah, the soda method is really um, really a method that anyone can use um, in any situation. You know, if you're a mom and you have and you have children that are um, acting up, um, it's pretty easy to to sort of um, to get angry. But really, what we want to be able to do is to be um, more mindful and not react um, in an unskillful way. Um, so it's not just customer service. It's really about using this soda idea of being able to be present, to stop long enough to really see situations clearly. That is the most useful tool. And frankly, this tool, this idea has been around for 2,600 years. So I think one of the reasons that the book really resonates with people so is wait a minute. This the soda method, which works not just for customer service, you're saying, in our day-to-day life, like the mother and dealing with an angry child, um, we can think of a lot of other situations, I think, on a daily basis where we need to use this method to calm down and then be able to deal with whatever the problem is. 2,600 years? You're talking about what? That's the time of, of that's the Bible times, isn't it? Well, it's even, it's, it's uh, the time of the Buddha. Because really what this, what this book is based on is a, a kind of Buddhist philosophy of being mindful, um, being compassionate, um, and many of the principles that are the basic, um, the basic premise of Buddhism. So really what this is is repackaged ancient wisdom. And this, this soda idea is really very consistent with the idea about mindfulness. So mind, I, I have some idea, obviously, about what mindfulness is and the way we can use it, as you're saying, on a daily basis in all situations that create anxiety, tension. Um, let's be specific, because in the book you talk about unplugging and um, qu- 
quieting yourself, and, and, and that's all part of the process, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, the first element of the book, obviously, is this soda idea, and the main character in the book is really having some challenges. She's a service rep, and she's starting to yell back at customers, which, of course, is against the rules. So the wise woman introduces her to this four-step process. But the other thing that she introduces this young woman to is this idea about unplugging your mind. And really, that's another word for meditation, but we don't call it that. Um, and the metaphor is, you know, when, you, when you're working in, in a service job, you have a headset on, so you unplug from the chaos, kind of like when you take off your headset. So the unplugging is, uh, is a way for being able to quiet your mind just once a day for about 10 minutes. And, and what it asks you to do is to focus on, on the now. Instead of, instead of getting caught up in your thoughts, as thoughts come floating in, as you're in that quiet mode, you don't hook on to them. You uh, say, you know, that's a thought, let it go. And that's the, exactly the same process that we use in the soda process because it'll, it asks you to stay in the moment, to be mindful. So unplugging is kind of it's kind of calisthenics for your brain. <laughs> so yes. when you need to uh, utilize the soda idea in an emotionally charged situation, let's take some of those emotionally charged situations yeah. in everyday life. I mean, we mentioned caring for children at home, mothers are, uh, and fathers sometimes ready to tear your hair out because you just feel so overwhelmed, and you are so plugged in. You need to get unplugged. So how would you use that in, in that situation or even in a marital situation? You know, I mean, this is another way I think that, that it could be very helpful, this approach, in, in marital couples who are having problems, who are always going at each other, who, you know, certainly are not unplugged, but they're plugged into each other in a negative way. How do we do that? How do we use this process with those examples? I think those are, those are two great examples, and I'm sure you've run into it in your, in your practice. Um, well, I think what, at least this is my take anyway, I think what gets us into trouble is when we, um, we um, let our emotions get out of control. And usually that's self-talk like, you know, he's doing this again, and I hate it when he does this, and why doesn't he understand why, you know, why I don't like whatever that behavior is? When in actuality, the person's probably doing the best that they can. And if you step back and sort of take the other person's point of view, you're able to understand that, you know, it's really, it's really not about you. It's more about this process that uh, the individual is going through that is, is acting out. So really it's about being able to stop and evaluate the situation and not getting hooked in emotionally. So you actually, you have to actually physically, or I mean, you know, I'm taking it like your lead from like the, the Buddhist meditation thing, you, ra- you have to step back emotionally. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. And not react? Absolutely. And, you know, we get into trouble when we get, when we get emotionally hooked in. And that's when we say things that we regret. And um, and that's when we get into um, into major battles with someone instead of instead of in a more rational way being able to see things much more clearly and then behaving differently. I think what we tend to do is is we we do we take it personally. We feel like the other person did wronged us and they did it on purpose and they and and it, the whole act was purposeful. I'm trying to think of an example between couples, for instance. You know, you. 
you didn't you didn't do the laundry and I told you to do it and you didn't do it and then you and then then the argument escalates uh, because you feel like well they didn't do it be, and it's because they they're trying to wrong me when that's not really the case is that a good example yeah that is that's perfect that's perfect you know i guess the the underlying issue here or the or the mantra would be you know it's not about me <laughs> you know the person isn't making isn't doing this because they're trying to make me crazy it's just that they forgot you know and we personalize a lot of these things you know a good example of that is when you're driving in traffic i i um i dated a guy once who would just get livid when someone uh, cut in front of him or whatever, and, you know, he would get on their bumper and, you know, quasi-road rage. And so I'd tease him and I'd say, okay, so this guy, not knowing you, decided to pick you out of the entire freeway and just make your life crazy. Is that right? <laughs> Which, of course, isn't true, but he personalized it. So, you know, it happens to us all the time. Uh, yeah, that's a great example. And I think it, it also happens what recently happened to me and to my boyfriend. <clears throat> we were in a restaurant, in, in, in a very crowded restaurant in New York City, and the waiter was somewhat abrupt. And believe me, I'm not excusing him, but I, you know, he was just, the, the, the situation was chaotic. And so he took it personally, like, you know, he's, you know, he's the waiter, he should be nice, he should be accommodating me. And I'm saying, you know, you really have to take it in the context that this is all happening. It really is not related to you personally. Step back from it. We're going to enjoy our meal. I don't want to focus on this waiter and how he has misbehaved or not treated us probably because it ruins our dinner. Right. And, And we could even take it one step further and have some compassion for that waiter and thinking, you know, the guy's got 14 tables here. I don't even know how he does this. So I'll just be patient. I know he's doing the best he can. Exactly. Yeah, and actually that was the situation because they didn't hire enough waiters. It really So they had, you know, two people working, as you describe it, you know, far many tables than they should be doing. So, I mean, you can use this, uh, you know, we wake up in the morning, you can use this every day, this whole process, I think. How about you personally? What made you, you know, something in your life that, that sort of tapped into all of this? Um, besides professionally, but on a personal level, that, you, that you got involved with this particular method, and how does it work for you? You know, the reason, the reason that I actually wrote the book, it's kind of autobiographical in a lot of ways, um, is that I, I now look at myself as um, a former general manager of the universe. <laughs> and um, that's what I would, I would always be thinking that, you know, well, I've just got to fix everything, you know. And there was, a, there was a situation, we have the Mall of America up here, and I remember my, my big aha moment was um, a guy in a big Escalade pulls up, and of course, you know, I'm not that big of a fan of these large, huge gas guzzlers, so right away I've got an attitude about the guy. He opens his door and takes his ashtray and dumps it on the, the cement floor of the parking ramp. And I stopped myself, thank God, because this guy looked like he was a bodybuilder, huge guy, and I'm like five foot two, and and I wanted to just take him to task and you know just you know be in his face about you know why are you doing that? That doesn't make any sense, you know. There's a garbage can. I wanted to do that, but then I stopped myself and I said, you know, I could get physically hurt. <laughs> I could punch me out. This is a bad idea. What am I doing? Who says I'm the general manager of the universe? So. Um, that was something well, I was Well, interesting you should with. say that, Barbara, because I thought I was the general manager <laughs> of the universe. So here, I, you know, it's... Inter- 
Yeah, exactly. So I I, you know, some of us are just, you know, admittedly, uh, you know, reformed control freaks. So, um, you know, obviously that doesn't work for you. And I remember, you know, just saying to myself, okay, I officially resign from being the general manager of the universe. And hence the book. And now we have to say goodbye. It, oh, no. I mean, yeah, I know. It went by quickly. I want to mention the book again, though, The Napkin, the Melon, and the Monkey, Barbara Burke. Great talking to you today. And go to Barbara's website at Barbara Burke. Dot com. Coming up in this next half hour is Philip Landrigan, MD, Chair of the Department of Preventive Medicine at uh, Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City. Barbara, thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. It was a great pleasure to have you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Don't go away because we'll be back in a minute. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. What it comes down to, ladies, is that defining line between been there, done that, and ain't going back, baby. Yeah, I've heard them call you yuppies and baby boomers, maybe even dolls, babes, darling, sugar, and sweetheart. But I say that women are truly amazing. Join Dr. Marlene for Amazing Women, Brains, Beauty, and Style every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific right here on the Voice America Women's Radio Network. Are you living with passion, purpose, and play? Are you ready to overcome your fears, claim your power and purpose to make your mark on the world, but don't know where to start? Tuck Self, the Rebel Bell, will inspire and empower you to squeeze as much juice and joy out of life as possible. You'll find your passion, live on purpose, and do it all with a boatload of play. Join this amazing voice for Tuck Talk every Monday at 6 p.m. in the East and 3 p.m. in the West on the Voice America Variety Channel. Live rebelliciously and on your terms. Listen for MD Radio on the Voice America Variety Channel. That's Muscular Development Radio. Every Monday, your host, Sean Ray, will take you inside the world of bodybuilding and health and fitness. The show will feature Hall of Fame bodybuilders, trainers, judges, and the future champions of tomorrow. Plus, you'll be invited to participate in our call-in Ask the Pros feature. And our nutritional spotlight will feature products that can help you achieve your fitness goals. MD Radio is broadcast live Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to the Catherine Zox Show. If you would like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll free number is 866 472 5788. That number again is 866 472 5788. We're back. Thanks for joining us. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to be talking to Dr. Philip Landrigan, MD author of What's Getting Into Our Children. He's the chair of the Department of Preventive Medicine and professor of pediatrics at the Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City, also the principal investigator for the NCS. Now, the NCS is the National Children's Study, which was appropriated in 2009 for two-thirds of its 
$300 million budget. So it has the largest study of children's health in U.S. history. And as I said, Dr. Landrigan is the principal investigator for the NCS. Um, The NCS will track 100,000 children from before birth, this is before birth, through age 21 to determine the environmental and genetic factors that influence health and development. Uh, And they're going to use that data that they collect uh, to develop a national blueprint for prevention. Um, Apparently, in the past century, the threats to our children's health have shifted radically. Most of us are aware of this. Life-threatening infectious diseases like smallpox and polio and cholera have largely been conquered, but uh, babies born in the United States today are expected to live two decades longer than their ancestors were 100 years ago. But we do have a problem, and Dr. Landrigan uh, is here. He's on the line now. Is uh, Welcome to the show. Oh, it's a delight to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Great to have you on the show, and I've already done the introduction, so we are good to go. Um, uh, we're going to talk about your New York Times article, uh, because, Dr. Landrum, you said that in your editorial, your goal is to inform the general population about the environmental threats to children's health. So that's what we're here to talk about today. Um, you know, and as a social worker, I guess my first question is, you know, what can we do? How can we be aware, first of all, about what those environmental carcinogens are and how can we help our, our families, mothers, fathers, children to actually do something about it? Yeah, well, that's, that's a great question. Thanks for asking, Catherine. So there's, basically there's several levels on which parents can act. First of all, of course, every parent, every mom, every dad is the CEO in their own home. And so they can take responsible, prudent steps inside their own home to reduce their own exposure, their children's exposure to carcinogens and other toxic chemicals. So, for example, uh, avoid toxic plastics. The bad ones are the ones where you turn the bottle over and you check the recycling number. Avoid numbers three, number six, and number seven. In fact, we have a little rhyme that goes like this. It goes five, four, one, two. All the rest are bad for you. That's that's a, a simple way to um, choose wisely among the many plastic products that are out there. Another thing that parents can do inside their own home is minimize, or better yet, eliminate use of toxic pesticides. Pesticides are terribly toxic chemicals, especially for pregnant women, because they get into the bloodstream of the mom and then over into the baby, can cause brain injury. Um, wise choice is, is not to use them. And then at the level of a community, every parent has the option to join the PTA, to join various community groups, to push for healthy foods, to make sure that the city planners put in sidewalks so the children get opportunity to walk safely to school. And then finally, every parent has the chance to act at the national level. Can Can you hear me? Uh, Hello, yeah. Yeah, okay. These are specific things that we can do, and we need to know those, and we need to do that. I want to take it back, though. It seems to me that many parents, most parents, even though they, they, they want to do this, they don't end up really paying attention paying attention to what the carcinogens are. There's a, we seems to me we need some kind of an attitude change. I mean, I will see parents who say they're concerned about what their kids eat and the air they breathe, and then at the same time they'll have the Chemlon guy in suburbia come and spray their lawn with chemicals, and then the kids are out there rolling around on the, uh, on the uh, chemical lawn every day. I mean, yeah, that, that happens, but I, I think in all fairness, it's, um, 
we can say that attitudes are changing. You know, it, it, for 50 years, people have been told that chemicals are good for you. Uh, they've been told that very effectively by the chemical industry, better living through chemistry. And, and it, it takes time to overcome uh, that teaching, which has become quite deeply embedded in our culture. But I, I think the word is out there, and one of the reasons that I think we're being effective these days at spreading the word and changing attitudes is that some very broad sectors of society have begun to accept our message. For example, the, the faith community, their uh, religious leaders of all the major faiths are more and more realizing that it's important to protect the environment because if we don't, if we, unless we have a healthy environment, we cannot possibly have healthy children and healthy families. What about the fact that, how does this come into play, but what about the fact that we cannot see some of these chemicals? You know, that what you can't see, you don't think is going, you know, unless you can see it, um, you know, unless you can actually see the chemicals that are doing harm to yourself or to your children, to your family, it, you, people seem not to, you know, well then, it's not there. If I can't see it, I'm not going to do something about it. I, I think that is an issue. I mean, obviously it's easier for parents to understand that you don't let your child run in front of traffic because the effects are immediate and they're visible. But but that's the I think the the core issue here is 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 education. Uh it's it's important for us in the professions to reasonably educate people about the chemical hazards that are out there. Are the doctors doing that? Now I you know I have three boys, three they're all in their 20s now, so it's sort of, you know, it's it's been a while since I've taken them to the pediatrician. But for instance, because pediatricians, I mean, they're the on the front line with the children, are they are you finding that pediatricians are more aware of what these carcinogens are and that they really sit down, talk to mothers, fathers uh, about this it, it just in the course of 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 uh, you know, treating uh, treating the children on a, you know, uh of daily basis. Yeah, well, I think the short answer is yes, they're they're becoming more aware. The um there's been a learning curve there too and and the underlying problem is that until very recently most American medical schools have provided uh young doctors in training with almost no information about environmental hazards beyond uh, a couple of lectures on lead poisoning and how to prevent asthma. And so the consequence of that is that most, the great majority of today's doctors, certainly people over the age of 40, have had very little exposure, very little education about these matters. We're working hard to change that. My colleagues and I have developed teaching modules that are being plugged into courses in medical schools around the country. We now have postgraduate training programs in children's environmental health. We put on special uh, continuing medical education programs for practicing pediatricians who absolutely, as you say, are the front line. So we're getting there, but it's just like changing cultural attitudes about chemicals. It takes time. So what would you say are the biggest impediments to the work you're doing? Um, I think I would say that we haven't quite yet reached a societal tipping point where the majority of people say, oh, my God, chemicals are a big problem. I've really got to protect my children against them. I think we're getting there. Uh, I think these sorts of cultural changes are incremental. Uh, we're building the scientific data. Each time we establish a new connection between a toxic chemical and a negative effect on human health, we, we publicize it. And uh, we're, we're building momentum. And, and I, as I look back over the last 
15 or 20 years, we've made enormous progress over this time. But I think we still have some distance to go before we reach a societal tipping point. We haven't reached the level with concern about chemicals that we've reached, for example, with concern about climate change. Do you think, what about the school systems? Are we, you know, that, because that's another place to start with the children themselves, so that they're armed with the information starting in elementary school. Are we doing anything about that? Yes. Again, uh, there are a lot of good, dedicated people developing teaching modules that are, that are focused and aimed at school children. And, um, we're, we are indeed trying to educate them. And you, I, I think in a lot of school districts around the country, the, the kids are actually ahead of their parents, and it's because of this education. Okay, so we're doing it from, I guess we're, you know, uh, taking this, I don't want to call it an assault necessarily, but the medical community, uh, as you mentioned, PTAs, and we want to do it with the children themselves. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, breast cancer, which I'm talking to, and I'm, you know, breast cancer and environmental carcinogens, which nobody talks about. There seems to be some a deafening deafening silence it's been described as uh, yeah. in terms of that they blame that you know if you have breast cancer uh, it, you know it's you didn't exercise enough or it's, it, it may be genetic because your mother had breast cancer or you ate the you know but it's always they never talk about you know the environment and how that impacts on breast cancer yeah. is that similar to this in terms of how it affects you know I think so I, yeah. I you know a few years ago there were some big studies like the Long Island breast cancer study on Long Island New York that tried to um, that looked at women with breast cancer and women from the same communities with, without breast cancer and compared chemicals in the two groups and didn't see much difference in chemical levels between the two groups of adult women. But that was a few years ago, and more recently uh, the focus is changing and people that are doing breast cancer research are beginning to ask themselves the question, well, what happens if the chemical exposures occur early in life when when the cells that become the female breast are being formed uh, in little girls when they're still in the womb and when they're little children. And some there's some intriguing research coming out of long-running studies in California, for example, which suggests that early life exposure to DDT pushes up risk for breast cancer in adult women. So the exposure takes place 25, 30, 40 years before the cancer develops, which is a fascinating concept but actually fits with what we know about cancer biology because Cancer is a disease that takes a long time to develop. So I, I think that we're going to be finding out, we're going to be making some breakthrough discoveries in this area pretty soon. I think so it's a hot area for research. Your National Children's Study, the NCS, I would imagine that in studying these pre, the children before they're born, and women specifically in this case, will probably find out, you'll get some answers from that study oh, over the I long term. I think term. so. The National Children's Study is, is the most, is the largest, it's the most ambitious study of children's health that's ever been launched in this country. Uh, the plan, as I'm sure you know, is to follow 100,000 children all across the United States from early pregnancy through to age 21. And the specific goal of the study is to learn how early environmental exposures contribute to disease in kids. Yeah, it sounds like the Framingham study of long, what thirty or forty years ago. I guess is still going on for heart research, right? It's Absolutely. In fact, we, we're going to just take a short break. We refer to it as the Children's Framingham seconds. Study. Dr. Philip Landrigan, Chair of the Department of Preventive Medicine and Professor of Pediatrics at the Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City, uh, Principal Investigator for the NCS. He'll be back with us in a few minutes. Don't go away. I'm Catherine Zoff, your social worker with a microphone here on VoiceAmericaVariety.com.
Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Total career success. What does it mean to you? Voice America presents a radio program dedicated to help you achieve your career goal. Even in times of economic uncertainty, you can achieve your financial goals. Whether you're a college grad, new in the working environment, or a top-level executive, you will benefit from the practical and proven advice on job search and career advancement. Join Ken and Cheryl Dawson every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, for Total Career Success on Voice America. Are you ready to go green? You've asked, and we've heard you. Voice America presents the Green Talk Network. Environmental topics are at the forefront of our society, and the Green Talk Network is here to keep you up to date on the latest trends and new innovations for the eco-conscious lifestyle. We'll help promote a variety of ideas on the environment, from global warming issues to how you can become more eco-friendly in your daily activities. Be a part of the solution, not the problem. Visit the Green Talk Network page on voiceamerica.com and tune in to help spread the green. Here's a show for baseball players, coaches, parents, and those who love the game. At least 90% of sports success, including baseball, requires mental strength in order to fully benefit from technical ability. And the higher the competition level, the more critical it becomes to possess mental muscle. Tune in every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific time to Championship Thinking, hosted by Jim Meyer and brought to you by the National High School Baseball Coaches Association. Jim, sports psychology coach, trainer, and author of numerous articles and the workbook, Championship Thinking, Building Mental Muscle in Baseball, simplifies the mental game with easy Easy to understand tools and tips. With his weekly guests, Jim draws from successes with professionals, college, high school, and youth teams, coaches, and players. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental and technical knowledge and skills with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back again. Thanks for joining us here on VoiceAmericaVariety.com. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with a microphone. It's the Catherine Zox Show. And I'm talking to Dr. Philip Landrigan, who is the chair of the Department of Preventive Medicine and professor of pediatrics at the Mount Sinai Medical Center right here in New York City, also the principal investigator for the NCS, which is the National Children's Study. Uh, Dr. Landrigan, we talked about a lot of things in the first half, but now let's be, I want to ask you specifically, all of these carcinogens that we are living with in our home and the environment, let's talk about what specifically these are doing to our children. What kinds of diseases are they getting? We know that cancer is on the increase, but what else? Well, another class of diseases that we're very worried about is learning disabilities, or some people call them neurodevelopmental disorders. And that term covers the whole gamut from dyslexia to attention deficit disorder, to mild mental retardation, right through to autism. The, these diseases are, are very common in American children, and 
we we now know with a high degree of certainty that six or seven different classes of chemicals contribute to learning disabilities, and we're very much concerned that there probably are more toxic chemicals in the environment that cause these problems that we've not yet discovered. Because I get the question as a social worker, autism, for example, are they saying, I mean, why are there more autistic children today? Is this because there are more children, the population, we have a bigger population, or... Uh, you know what are I, and people are asking that question. I hear that, and and I don't always hear that the reason is it's because of carcinogens in the environment, which brings me to my second question: What's the response from the chemical industry? I mean, that's a multi-billion-dollar industry in this country. How does that fit into all of this? Well, one of the big issues that uh, where we engage the chemical industry is over the is over the question of testing chemicals before they come to market. You know, I think most Americans believe that if they go into the store and purchase a product off the shelf, that the chemicals in the product have been tested and that the material is safe for use. Unfortunately, that's not true. Chemical testing is mostly a myth. It's mostly a sham. Um, More than half the chemicals that are in consumer products have never received more than minimal scrutiny for their toxicity, and only a minority of the chemicals that are found in consumer products have ever been specifically examined to see whether they're toxic to pregnant women and young children. It's very different from drugs. When when you go and you buy pharmaceuticals, you get a prescription from your doctor, there's a high degree of assurance that that chemical has really been tested, but that does not pertain for consumer chemicals. And this is an issue of significant tension between the pediatric community and the chemical industry. Uh, Most pediatricians, I think most parents, most responsible human beings would believe that chemicals ought to be tested before they're released into the marketplace and expose pregnant women and young children. So the chemical companies, what are they saying? I'm sure it has to do uh, making the assumption with the bottom line, well, it's going to be too expensive to do that, to, to test them in the same way that, you know, the FDA makes sure that the, the uh, medications that we take have been tested. They don't right. want to spend the money, this, is that this it? This may come to a test this year in Congress because depending on, on how the congressional calendar plays out, uh, there's been talk that there may be introduced a bill uh, by Senator Lautenberg of New Jersey called the Kids Safe Chemicals Act which will actually require that chemicals be properly tested. We'll see if it comes to the, to the floor or not, but it might be. So, in other, so what you're saying, this is really important. Don't make the assumption, and I think I've made the assumption too, that these chemicals have been tested. Somehow, you know, it, it's just, as a consumer, you do, I think as and women particularly, because they're usually the ones who go and buy the products in the grocery store, you do make the assumption that they're safe and they've been tested, and that's just not true. That's just not true. So would you suggest, and I'm starting to do this, and it all has to do uh, actually with educating the consumer, as you say, buying all of the, like, eco-friendly products. Um, I've started to do that. I can't say that I do it all the time, but at least half the products that I have in my house are eco-friendly. Now, can you make the assumption that they really are safe? They're, they're certainly safer. So let me give you a, a couple of specifics. Um, organic produce. Um, I don't know if no, if organic produce is nutritionally better for you than stuff that you that comes from halfway around the world, but I can assure you that it has far less toxic pesticide on it. There have been some very good studies done by the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, by the University of Washington in Seattle, which have shown that people who eat mostly organic produce have 80 or 90 percent 
lower levels of pesticides in their bodies compared to people that eat conventionally grown produce. So that's that's a big step right there. Uh, green cleaning products um, are, for the most part, less toxic than the traditional cleaning products. I think that every little bit helps. It's hard to be completely consistent across the board. People have busy lives, but still, if you can do some of your shopping organic and make some of your purchases eco-friendly, I think that's all to the good. And I think also, Dr. Landrigan, is getting back to the attitude change. We have to decondition ourselves. I mean, I brought all these uh, green products for my cleaning lady to use, and she said, well, I can't, nothing is going to get clean unless I use the products that have all the chemicals in them because yeah, these yeah. green products are not going to clean the house. And I said, yes, they are. Try them. Yes, and she yeah. has terrible allergies. And, you know, over the past six months, her, it's worked better for her. She has less problems with her allergy using these green products. But I had to convince her that, yes, you still can get the house clean without using those chemicals. Yep, yep. So it's all a part of the, the education. I mean, it's, it's education, all a, yeah, it's we, culture change, that's right. It's, it's, getting, it's very important for those of us in the professions to get good, high-quality, credible information out there. Uh, there's a lot of um, misinformation, and we have to try to counter that, which we try to do. So what's the next step? I mean, I know you have all these series of articles that you have in the New York Times, um, you know, in terms of what you're doing at Mount Sinai. Um, you know, what's coming up, anything that the public or that we should be aware of in the next... Well, there there have been a couple of very important research findings that have come out just very recently that um, would be good to call people's attention to. Um, our colleagues at Columbia University published a paper just last week in one of the peer-reviewed medical journals showing that brominated flame retardants, which are found in everything from mattresses to TV casings to computers, um, are associated with um, uh, reduced IQ uh, in children. And the situation is the children that were exposed to these chemicals when they were still in the womb, because their moms were exposed to them, have lower IQs than uh, ch- children from the same communities, the same backgrounds that weren't exposed. And then another paper somewhat along the same lines is coming out from our own group at Mount Sinai this week showing that um, babies who are exposed in the womb to phthalates, which is a class of chemicals found in plastics, um, are at greater risk for attention deficit disorder when when they get to be eight or nine years old. This is is very worrisome because phthalates are a chemical that's found all over America. Most of us carry measurable levels of it in our bodies, and um, if this observation is confirmed, I think it has profound implications for uh, what chemicals we'll choose to expose our children to in the future. So every pediatrician, it seems to me, as a result of these studies that you're talking about at Sinai and also at Columbia, every pediatrician really should have a a sheet uh, to give to parents, to give to pregnant women, sort of outlining what we've talked about today. Um, if you're talking about prevention. Yes, and, and, and we have developed such teaching materials. Others have, too. The American Academy of Pediatrics has also become very aware of these issues, and every three or four years now the, the, the Academy brings out a new edition of what's come to be called the Green Book, which is the American Academy of Pediatrics. The Green Book. We have to say goodbye. It has been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks so much for all this great information. Philip Landrigan, MD, Chair of the Department of Preventive Medicine and Professor of Pediatrics at the Mount Sinai Medical Center. Uh, Great having you on the show today. Thank you, Catherine.
I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You're listening to VoiceAmericaVariety.com. Hope you had a great day, and we'll see you next week. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaVariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.